Another thing that we're resuming today is our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and it's been a few weeks, so it's possible we've lost track of where we were. I lost track of where we were, so I had to go look. We're in chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, and the last chapter of the book of Hebrews is sort of about some of the practical implications of the theology of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, you might have noticed, is a heavy-duty theology book. It is the one book of the whole Bible that, in my view, ties the whole Bible together like no other. It tells you who Christ is from an eternal perspective, and uh, it's written to Hebrew people in the days before there was a New Testament Obviously, it's in the New Testament. And so it references the Word of God in the Old Testament for the sake of exalting Christ. Well, when you get to chapter 12, then, you have a little bit of a hinge in the book of Hebrews, and he turns again to, therefore, therefore, if this is true, then what? And he says at the beginning of chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Christ, which tells you that the race set before us is laid out in the direction of Christ. So we interpret that as something like this. Let us continue to live every day, all day, day after day, in the assurance of our place in Christ. I'm going to say that again. Let us continue to live every day, all day, day after day, in the assurance of our place in Christ. Our standing before God is in Christ. There is no other standing before God. And it is a standing of grace. So earlier in the book, of course, we have that famous text, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. And it is a bit of an announcement that the throne of God is a throne of grace where we receive help and mercy instead of judgment and punishment because of the atonement, the, the sacrifice of the one in whom we come to that place. So when we come before God, we come with Him. And because we come with Him, and because He made this great sacrifice, we can come in there. 
And we can come boldly as God's children, as brothers of our Savior, and not as subjects of His wrath. He goes on then in chapter 12 to say, to encourage us to see and appreciate the disciplinary hand of God. Now, that's a different from a punishing hand. It's meant for our benefit and our good, and it produces good, good things in us. And so, as Christians, we should look at the difficulties we face in this life as purifying, as helping, as making something in us that cannot be made otherwise. He goes on then to say we need to run together looking after each other. We don't run this race fixing our eyes on Jesus by ourselves. But we are called upon to look after those who are having difficulty in the race. To help them, to encourage them, to point their heads to Christ. He says we should do this because we've come to Zion not Sinai. What a great picture. Sinai, the place where the law is laid down in terrifying... Uh, I don't know what word to use after that. But when we, the, the Israelites came up to Mount Sinai, the whole place shook, and they all said, don't let us get anywhere near God, Moses. You go. Keep us away. And God lays down the law on Sinai. We come to Zion where the perfect sacrifice of our Savior atones for our law-breaking. And so, he says, let us then show gratitude. <laughs> and the literal word here is let us possess grace. Let us possess grace, have grace, cling to grace. You might remember we talked about the best way for a kid to give thanks for the birthday gift of his bicycle is to have the best time possible riding it. If he says, thanks, Dad, I love the bicycle and never gets on it, then something's gone wrong. And so we are the recipients of this unbelievable blessing. What is the thing to do with that? Love having it. And live in a way that shows it. 
And so because we have grace, we extend grace. When you live in conscious assurance of God's grace in Christ by the Spirit, everything changes. And that is the main thing of the Christian life. It's what we sang about in the song. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what you are. All our obedience comes from there or it's not real. It's because we possess His grace that we exhibit His grace. The first thing in the Christian life is not what you do, it's what you have gotten. I just want to say that a lot because this section is kind of about some things you do. But if you do these things and it's not from that reflection of His goodness toward you, then you're just hanging oranges on an apple tree and calling it fruit. The real fruit of the Christian life is only produced in abiding in the vine. So, Having said all that, we come to these chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we start reading about how this should be reflected. What, how grace does operate in the life of a Christian. How things are changed because we abide in His grace. So we read about brother love must remain. We must live in the good fellowship of the brotherhood of the Spirit of God in Christ. Do not operate as a believer by yourself, for heaven's sake. We, this love needs to be reflected. This grace needs to be exhibited And the primary opportunity for that is in the body of Christ, in the fellowship of the saints. Jesus says, this is how anyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. And then we said, also, stranger love. (laughs) It's kind of an odd word. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In the text, it says, stranger love, do not neglect the love of strangers, the love of foreigners, do not neglect. And so we love the brothers and we welcome those who are different or new. From somewhere we're not from. The body of Christ is indiscriminate in its welcome. Or should be. And then he says, also, uh, 
Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. So we need to take care of people who are stuck or mistreated, remembering that we are stuck and mistreated and redeemed only in Christ. Then he says, marriage is to be held in honor. And again, the way this is put in the original text is, is a little funny sounding. It says, precious the marriage. Think, wow, that's kind of a weird thing to have in this list. Turns out it's not weird to have this in this list. Precious the marriage, the bed, undefiled. That's, a, that's just a literal translation. What that means is marriage matters because it is designed to be an exhibition of these things, a reflection of God's grace and our response to it, our living in it. So you might remember, we talked about how marriage is a bigger deal than anyone thinks and that its purpose isn't entirely just to have a happy life, which is kind of how we treat it. We think it's about having a good life. Well, and it certainly can, that can happen in or through marriage. But its primary purpose is to be this reflection of the equality and diversity of God Himself. Father, head of Son, Son, head of church. Well, I don't want to preach on that again, but uh, that's where we left off. Well, and if you thought that was meddlesome, wait till today, because today we're talking about money. What's your relationship with money like? Yeah. I don't know how carefully you were listening when we read the Scripture in which Jesus was talking about money. Well, and money here is only uh, some kind of representation of the material things of this world. Wealth. So here's what Hebrews says on that. No money loving your way. That's, that's the actual thing. It's three words. It's the word for money-loving with a A in front of it. The A means not. Not money-loving your ways, your way of life. I like this translation that says your way of life should be free from the love of money. I like that translation because it captures the idea that the love of money 
is a trap. In fact, the Scripture describes it explicitly as a trap. A snare, Paul writes to Timothy. And Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. This text in Luke chapter 14, Jesus literally says, if you want to be my disciple, you must forsake all that you have. Has anyone ever done that? Well, Jesus has. Which I think might be the point. He has. And he's done it on your behalf. But how's that even possible? That's what he said. Forsake all that you have. So the writer of Hebrews says, your way of life needs to be free from the love of money. I think that what we want to see is that this is a choice, a choice between shakable things. You remember at the end of chapter 12, he talks about the kingdom we're receiving is a kingdom that cannot be shaken and everything else is going to be shaken, as in shaken down, as in destroyed by a mighty earthquake. But the kingdom of Christ, not. And so this is what we show gratitude over. We are receiving the unshakable And what we're seeing here is an exhortation that says, your way of life should be free from the love of the shakable stuff. It's a choice between shakable and unshakable. This is what Jesus was talking about in the text we read. He's saying, don't store up yourself treasures on earth where, what? Moth and rust destroy. Thieves steal. Have you ever had anything stolen from you? Have you ever had anything important stolen from you? Can you rely on the stuff of this world? We're choosing between things that can't be shaken and things that can in this text. And it doesn't really show gratitude for the eternal kingdom that we're receiving, the unshakable kingdom, if we go around prizing the shakable things. Another way of saying this is financial security is not a worthy hope. Should I say that again? I know... It's a smart idea to put some money away for the future. And by the way, I'm not really trying to talk you out of that. But is that a worthy hope? Here's what Jesus said. If you love money, you serve money. 
it does not serve you. That's a big distinction. If you don't love money, then your money serves you. If you love your money, you serve it. This is kind of the way to know. Are, do you work for your money? Or does your money work for you? You see, the problem here is idolatry. That's what Jesus was ta- discussing, wasn't it? He says you can't serve God and money. You have to pick a master, and you can only have one ultimate master. If you, you can't walk on both sides of the fence here. You can only have one Lord. And if your Lord is the Lord who is delivering to you the unshakable kingdom of God, that sounds like a solid hope. If your Lord is where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, and then you've got to spend a ton of money to protect your money, or you're like that guy in the parable who's building another barn just to stack up some more stuff, only to die that day. Well, here's the thing. That's one thing is absolutely certain. One day, you and all your stuff will be separated for good. You really want your life to be invested in the shakable things? So, our writer says, your way of life should be free of the love of money, being content with what you have. You just need to stop and think for a second about the meaning of that expression. Be content with what you have. Again, I want to ask the question, has anyone ever done that? Ever? Stopped wanting anything they don't have already. That seems like a kind of impossible standard. Yeah. Being content with what you have. This is argued over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus is arguing for it in Matthew chapter 6. Paul argues for it in this text I have on your bulletin there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He also argues for it by telling us he has it himself in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 19 where he says, I've learned the secret of being content no matter what my situation in this life is. I wonder what the secret is. That'd be a secret worth learning. He says, I've learned the secret. And he says to Timothy, tell those rich guys 
The love of money, it's the same word. The love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil. And some people, because of the love of money, have walked away from the faith. That is so supremely stupid. That is someone choosing the thing which will be shaken out of their hands one day at the sacrifice of the unshakable things. And the word picture in that text, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, is, I don't know, have you ever seen that little prank people sometimes play where they tie a $100 bill to a piece of fishing line or something and leave it on the street? And someone sees it and they reach for it and it, and they reach for it. That's the picture in that text. The love of money has led people astray. It's like, and suddenly you realize you're lost. You don't know where you are because you've chased this bill. That's the picture. Love of money is a trap. Now, this sentence, be content with what you have, literally means this. Consider, consider, count your present wealth. I don't know what your present wealth is. You have a certain amount of cash, a certain amount of money in the bank, a certain amount of house, car, stuff. You have a certain level. This says, consider that, whatever that is, as enough. Sufficient. <laughs> really? That's what it says. Now, I want to fill this in a little bit for you. I want to say, recognize the strong tendency. There's a strong tendency in all of us to seek security in insecure things. To seek security in temporal resources. Now, I can tell if, I'm, if I have this problem by how much I worry about whether I have enough or whether I will have enough next week. This says, be, consider however much you have to be enough. This is pretty radical. I mean, nobody really does this. This is pretty radical to consider whatever you have to be enough. Recognize a strong tendency in yourself to find your safety in your stuff. Then, that's not enough. Just to recognize that tendency is not enough. You also need to recognize this, the foolishness of that strategy. You need to recognize that finding 
security in your stuff is really dumb, really stupid. It is not a good place to find your safety. It is a hope that will disappoint. I know a guy who spent his whole life building up his business. He was very successful, and at, when it came time for him to retire, he uh, sold his business. He sold his business to a giant company that also was in this business. And they paid him a lot for his business. But you know how they paid him, mostly? They paid him mostly in stock in the big business. They paid him in stock. So he got a, a big amount of ownership in the bigger company. This is very common. And you, he was ready to retire. So he's going to live on this for the rest of his life and live very comfortably. Except the big company was full of a bunch of criminals and it's a big public traded corporation. But it was full of people who were doing wrong. And so within like, I think within a month of the time this deal was made, his stock in that new company was literally worthless. The, new, the, the big company was bankrupt. It was bankrupt when they gave him the stock. They knew it. He didn't. So he went from being his life's work, being really wealthy, to needing to go back to work just to get by. Now, this is someone I personally know. But this is a story that has been repeated in the history of humanity in one form or another on a nearly daily basis. It's just not a good idea to invest your security, your hope in material things. Now, this person I know knows Christ, and so he's not undone by this turn of events because his ultimate security was not in these things. But what if it was? I remember when I was in business, uh, I managed a small business my parents started when I first began my career, and I didn't manage it very well, so it went broke. And every day I'm making calls, trying to get people to pay us the money they owe us. And I'm getting calls, trying to get me to pay them the money I owe them. And these two numbers, if you, they, they almost matched, but they didn't quite match. I, I can tell you this is one of the most stressful things I've ever endured. Getting hassled for what I owe and needing to hassle the people who owe me. And 
the whole thing was just going down the tubes. It was like we were in business to give away money. One day, I was standing in my office, and this question came into my mind. I'm going to give the Spirit credit for this question coming into my mind. I might have just thought of it, but I give him the credit. What if they get it all? What if you lose everything? I want to ask you this question because I think it's a very important question. Being asked this question was very significant in my spiritual development. What if you lose everything? Well, here's what I realized when confronted so directly with this question. I can lose everything and lose nothing because I have him. I was standing there in my office that day and felt under my feet the rock of my salvation. And so I could stand there and go, if, if they get everything, I can get up tomorrow and go back to work and I'll be fine because I have the promise of God that he will take care of me. And he will take care of me even if I die. So he says, be content with what you have. Look at whatever you've got and say, nah, it's enough. Now that doesn't mean you don't work or you don't, you, you don't try to save money or make good investments. You live wisely, but you don't invest any faith in these things. And you could lose it all tomorrow and you'll be fine. What he says here is, fix your hope on God. <laughs> Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot to you. And you'll still be really well off. You will still be the heir of all things in Christ. Fix your hope on God. You see, fellowship with God is life itself, the prize. Knowing God in Christ is it. And God is the actual source and the actual owner of everything else you have. And he will not abandon you. Philippians chapter 4, he promises perfect provision for you in every way at all times. Now, I know you don't think you're being perfectly provided for. How do I know that? Because I don't think I am. A lot of the time I'm like, I need this. How come I don't have this? Usually this is, you know, in some kind of relational context. It's not about stuff. How come this person doesn't behave the way they ought to behave? 
That's what I need. How come the world is not organizing itself to keep me happy? In spite of that feeling, which I have on a pretty much daily basis, in spite of that feeling, the Lord says to me, the word of God is, the promise of God is, I am taking care of you so that you don't actually have any real needs. So this commandment, whatever you have, consider it enough. Well, I admit that's a struggle to keep my faith in that. But that's what we're exhorted to do here because certain things are true. Because Jesus did, in fact, die for my sins. Because, this Roman says, if he gave his only son, why on earth would he withhold anything else? Will he not also with him freely give us most of the stuff we need? That's not what it says. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? We're receiving an unshakable kingdom, and it, that unshakable kingdom consists of every good thing. So I fix my hope on God. I recognize I have a strong tendency to fix my hope elsewhere. And then I need to recognize that that is a dumb strategy. And then I need to view myself as a steward, not an owner, in relation to things. It's not mine, really. I'm his, so anything that's mine is his, too. He's supposed to take care of his stuff. I wonder if he'll do a sufficiently good job of it. Mm -hmm. He's managing me and my stuff included. He's taking care of me. He cares for me. Jesus said, look, look, just look at a bird for heaven's sake. God makes sure they have enough to eat. God will make sure you have enough to eat. And if God lets you go hungry for a while, it's because he needs to let you go hungry in order to give you something more important than eating. Fix your hope on God. Fix your hope on God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Run with endurance. Show gratitude. You know how much it shows gratitude if someone goes without gracefully? If someone endures some poverty in the joy of the Lord, it's a powerful thing. There are people in this world who are enduring much worse than poverty for the name of Christ, and it is a powerful testimony to the value of the name of Christ. So that leads us to this thing here, seize your opportunities. We're still talking about being content with what you have. Seize your opportunities to make this great exchange. 
to exchange the things you cannot keep for the things you cannot lose. That's a quote that's credited to a guy named Jim Elliott. Some of you may not know who Jim Elliott was. He was a missionary. He died, I think, when he was about Angelo's age. He was murdered. Well, killed, let's say. I guess it was probably could, could be considered an act of war in which he was killed. He was killed by the people he was trying desperately to show the love of Christ to. Jim Elliott knows that you can die and still live. And he would have said, would say today, probably does say today, how thankful he is that his sacrifice became something like the sacrifice of Jesus because those people who killed him ultimately came to Christ because they killed him. <laughs> the Lord's ways are over our heads. And he's the guy credited with this quote. He said, he is no fool who gives up the things he can't keep to get the things he can't lose. Now, here's the thing about that quote. He didn't, like, write it in a book, so clever, preach it in a message. In fact, it's possible he's not even the guy who said it. In fact, it's likely he's not even the guy who said it. You know, why it's attributed to him is because when he died, when he was speared, on a beach in the Amazon, well, in the tribal areas of northern South America. But it's that way, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's over there, yeah. Well, it's over, where he was is over there. But anyway, when he died that day, he had a Bible with him. And that Bible was found on him when he was found. And this sentence, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose, was written like a note in this Bible. I think he understood the meaning of that text that sentence. And that is the meaning of the trade between the unshakable things and the shakable things. If you can take some of your un, some of your shakable things, some of the stuff you're going to let go of sooner or later, and you can turn that into something that cannot be lost, that is a valuable investment. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, build up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
How do you do that? Well, you take some of this worthless nonsense and you give it up for the sake of this treasure. You have opportunities to do that in your life, to use whatever God has provided in your life for some lasting purpose. And that's how you should see that, not as some kind of demand or, or burden on you, but as a fantastic opportunity. I mean, if you can do that, of course you should. Of course you will. I don't have to insist on it. <laughs> I just have to show you what a great deal it is. Seize your opportunities. Instead of seeking material comfort, seek to be material comfort. Now, <laughs> I am a hypocrite on this stuff. I know it. This is a thing we aspire to and work on and work toward. I, do, I have the same tendency as everyone to cling to my stuff as though I gain some safety in it. But it's a foolish strategy. I should be content with what I have, and I should seek to invest what I have in things that will remain. And so he says we say with confidence, we boldly say, this word confidently say, this word is the same as that word in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 10. We come before the throne of grace boldly. We say boldly, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's a quote from the Psalms, Psalm 118. It's written here. We reflect our confidence, our trust in Christ when we rely on God as our provider. One of God's major names is God the provider. Of course, God is the creator, so he's the provider of all things. In this text in 1 Timothy that's listed in your bulletin here, God says, or Paul says, God has given us all things to enjoy. We show gratitude when we look to God as our provider. Do you need any of the goods of this world? Do you need any of the goods of this world? I'm going to answer this yes and no. Yeah, I mean, Jesus said, God knows you need these things. He says, don't worry about these things. God knows you need them. So you do need them. And at the same time, there's not a single one of them that you could not go without, including your very life. Because you possess the life of Christ. 
powerful thing. Does God know you need these? Yes. What if you woke up tomorrow with nothing? That'd be a challenging experience, wouldn't it? What if you woke up tomorrow and, you know, the world had crashed and all your bank accounts were just gone into space somehow? You're going to be fine in Christ. <clears throat> now, I want to close with this question. Is the Bible advising us to be financially foolish? Well, short answer, no, the Bible never advises you to be foolish. Wait, now I'm thinking of spots where the Bible does advise you to be foolish in the world's terms. The Bible says God's foolishness is wiser than the best wisdom we have. Okay, well, no is my answer to this question. The Bible's not really advising you to be financially foolish, but it is advising you to care a lot less about your financial state. Because that would be wise. I don't know how much you care about your financial state, but I am fairly confident it's way too much. Now, I might be just telling you about myself here. I don't know what your state really is, but this is my experience, and I think it's common. That's why this is in the Bible. We care way too much about our financial condition. And quite often, it's an expression of our general anxiety, which is an expression of our general need for faith in Christ. But anyway, it's better to say it like this. The Bible is advising us to see the world's wealth for what it actually is. A tool. A tool, a means to an end, not an end in itself. Not a thing to put one's hope or trust in, but a thing to be used for good purposes. The Bible is advising us to adopt a more sensible hope and that is our hope in Christ. And to take opportunities to spend the temporal resources on eternal things. That's what the Bible's advising us. Your way of life, free from the love of money. That's a lofty goal. And I think if God's people exhibited this show of gratitude, this possession of grace, it would be a mighty testimony for the love of Christ. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, help us to take up the challenge of it, not in our own resources, but in relying upon you by keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.